Hello everyone and welcome to Red Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiog fellowed oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 108. My name is Naman Jorka Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone! A big thank you to our last guests, Chloe and Emily, who talked about their roles as occupational therapists. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest Nina Lopez and she will be discussing living with stage 4 cancer. Hi Nina, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. It's nice to see the two of you finally. <laughs> so Nina, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself, please? Oh, wow, where do I begin? So I am a mother. I was born in Lisbon. I moved to the UK in the early 90s. And it was a bit of a strange time in the 90s when I moved to the UK, I have to say. Being a teenager, moving to a foreign country, I didn't speak the language was um was an experience but um i moved with with my parents and i decided to study fashion so i am a fashion designer by trade that's what i do uh, and then once i got diagnosed with stage four cancer my life took a different direction i would say because i couldn't do that job anymore but yeah i am 41 I'm about to be 42 this year and yeah I'm a mum, I'm a creative, I am a cancer platform ambassador, I like to encourage people to check their breasts, to know their bodies and yeah that's me I guess in a nutshell really. I model, I do a bit of everything nowadays. <laughs> so Nina if you don't mind talking to us and if your diagnosis you know Talk us about what happened. How did you find out that you had cancer? So I was initially diagnosed in 2018. I was 36. I was traveling around the world with work. And I just felt a lump in my breast just by chance. No one had ever taught me how to check my breasts. I just really, breast cancer just wasn't something that I was familiar with. But one night I was just really tired. I'd put my daughter to bed. I went to bed and I just had my laptop on, on my stomach and I was just like watching Netflix and I was eating some popcorn and popcorn fell on my chest. And when I went like this, I was like, oh, this is this wasn't here before. And I've got very small breasts, so it's very easy for me to feel anything that that isn't normal. And um I am not the kind of person to hang around. I go to the doctor, I make an appointment, I check everything. Uh, I went to get a check, they told me everything was okay, be mainly because I was young, I was 36 at the time. They told me maybe it's that time of the month and your breasts tend to get lumpy. And I just, you know, accepted that's what it was. And then a couple of weeks later, I felt another lump on my breast. But I felt it because I couldn't sleep on my stomach anymore. And that was my preferred way of sleeping. And I would get these sharp pains. And then I checked again and the lump was harder and it was bigger. So I went to the doctor and within, I think, a couple of weeks, I knew that I had triple negative breast cancer. And at the time, that was uh, a really tough pill to swallow. And my daughter was six. It was the beginning of the summer holidays and 
I'd never heard of triple negative. I think when you get diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, especially now I know it, but it's already terrible. But then someone says, oh, but it's also triple negative breast cancer. And I, I, I just couldn't understand, I couldn't separate the two because I just thought, well, this is bad either way. Um, and that was 2018. I had chemo, I had radiotherapy, I had a lumpectomy and I completed all my treatment, I would say April 19, I think. And I was told that I had a complete pathological response. It was the best news I could have, have heard. And then after a year and a bit of being back to work, I discovered that the pain I was complaining about for over a year actually turned out to be stage four cancer. And my second diagnosis was probably the most challenging because whereas the first one was with curative intent, when you are diagnosed with uh, secondary breast cancer, it's very much, we, it's inoperable, we can't cure you and any treatment that we offer you, there's no guarantee it's gonna work and is mainly to prolong your life and to hopefully improve the quality of your life. Um, but it's been two years and I'm, I'm still here. So that's where we are. With the ongoing treatments, Nina, what is your quality of life like now? So currently I am on a um, clinical trial and this, I would say, since I've been on the clinical trial, I'd say this is the best quality of life I've had. If I have to compare it to my first line of treatment, which was gemcitabine and carboplatin, it was really challenging to be on, on those drugs. I lost a lot of weight. I couldn't eat, definitely vomiting all the time. Uh, it's a manageable drug, so I don't want to scare people off. It's, it's definitely a gem of a drug because it, it did buy me quite a lot of time. But if I have to compare it with the clinical trial that I'm on now, no one can tell that I am unwell. I mean, I've gained all my healthy weight back. So most people will say, you look like the old you, like you actually look like you're doing really well, uh, which that in itself is a bit of a misconception anyway. But um, fatigue is the hardest part. But overall, I'm about to go on a trek. I went on one last year. I've been on two holidays, I'm making memories, I'm living my life, I'm dropping my daughter to school, I'm able to be there for her. And for me, the quality of life that I wanted when I entered this clinical trial was very much to make those memories, which for me are taking my daughter to school, picking her up, making dinner, sitting down, eating with her, going to the park. You know, it's, it's those things that make the quality of life. And I also have been very fortunate to not be in immense pain. I would say currently this is the most pain I've experienced is what I'm feeling today. And I have been feeling the last couple of days. Uh, but apart from that, um, I never in a million years expected that this would be what you would get from a clinical trial. I am living well. I am eating well and I can't complain. I just wish I had more trial options. 
I suppose you touched on around clinical trials and helping it's helping you improve your quality of life if obviously through stigma or community or anything that you've heard about clinical trials before what would you say to other people who might consider a clinical trial but say they don't want to go into it I would say that clinical trials are not things to save for when there is nothing else to use. I would definitely say clinical trials should be the first thing that you discuss with your oncologist when you know you have triple, uh, not triple negative, secondary breast cancer, or maybe even earlier. I think that when you enter a clinical trial, in a way is more of a tailor-made treatment. You are being checked all the time because you are data. These drugs are new. I think that nowadays the drugs that are being developed are more targeted. So it means that the side effects are more manageable in comparison to your conventional chemos. And I really want people to know that I mean, I'm really grateful that I had someone like Mary who I would speak to a lot. And she always made me so aware of it so that when I was diagnosed, that was one of the first things I asked my oncologist. I asked to have the list of all the treatment lines available to me. And then I asked what are the trial options. The only reason I didn't enter the trial sooner is because my disease wasn't the right size. So I was already aware that there was potentially this trial available at my hospital. Um, and if I could have, it would have been my first option that I would have opted for. And I want people to, when they see me living through it, to see what it actually looks like to live on a clinical trial. And we do need more people from diverse backgrounds to join clinical trials because otherwise the, the drugs are never gonna be targeted to everybody. Um, so yeah, I hope that people can see that you can have a very good healthy, not healthy, but balanced life on a clinical trial whilst living with um, terminal cancer. And, you know, it is a commitment, isn't it? Because you do have to have lots of ongoing tests. They do monitor you closely. So how do you kind of manage hospital appointments with living your life? It's a huge commitment. And also, when you sign up for a clinical trial, there are certain things that you have to just accept. They are what they are. So, for instance, the clinical trial that I'm on, I have really struggled on the parbocyclib. So that drug no longer is available to me. So I'm only on the Evelumab. And as painful as it has been to accept it, that's what you sign up for when you enter a clinical trial. I don't have a say. And it is difficult because I have to manage appointments. That's why it makes it very difficult to have a job. Uh, when I say a job, I mean I used to be head of design and it's impossible for me to work at, at, at that level when I'm always in hospital and uh, if something goes wrong they say can you come for a test can you come for a scan we now need to do your bloods so it's a huge commitment but I have to say that the 
my doctor has been really good at still allowing me to live my life. You know, I'm traveling. I'm going on this trek. In order for me to go on this trek, they have to make allowances. And I hope that when people see me traveling and living, that is a reflection of how doctors are also bearing in mind that I need a quality of life. And quality of life is being able to make all these memories and actually live my life. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a gamble. And also it's, you have to take the good with the bad. So I know that I have to be in hospital a lot, which means that it affects my finance, my, my financial um, quality of life. But then on the other hand, it's giving me this quality that then allows me to go and make these memories. Thank you for talking us through that, because I think it's definitely a side to to cancer life that people just don't see or don't talk about. And I know Mary Huckle was amazing, wasn't she, at kind of raising awareness around clinical trials and advocating for yourself. But it needs that awareness because it isn't publicly available. Um, and I think something you said really hit me when you were talking about the fact that you look very well, you know, people are commenting on, you know, you're looking fabulous, you, you're going on holiday, you're kind of promoting, um, you know, all the amazing work that you're doing on Instagram. And from the outside looking in, you could be, you could be fooled into thinking everything's fine with Nina. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is very different, isn't it? How do you cope with that because I would imagine you know friends family who aren't maybe so close to you do have that perception yeah it's been it's been a, a challenge because of course you want to look well because looking well is what gets you out of bed every morning you make yourself look great so that in return you can have a good day because you know it's all in your head but then it is very difficult because the decline I think People don't realize that it's sometimes the treatment that makes you feel quite or look very unwell. So I am on a clinical trial, which means the drugs are different. And so I look different, but it doesn't mean that I'm not experiencing pain. And I realize that I have to be more vocal, but I've never been the kind of person, I think being African, I'm not used to telling people I'm in pain or, oh, I can't do this because I am, I'm in pain. I'm the kind of person who, I'm a mother, I'm in pain, I get up, I get dressed, I go cook dinner, I, I go and do what I need to do. And maybe that is something that I have to change and often tell my family I'm, I'm not doing so good, I'm, I'm not feeling great. I think my close circle of friends really know, they know when I'm not well and they know to come and just um, pick me up and try and help me and, and get me out of uh, a dark place if I'm not feeling great. But I think people don't realise that. When you were first diagnosed, Nina, what did your family say? Wow. Okay. Well, first and second time. So the first time, I think it was a real shock to to everyone. I have four brothers. There's there's five of us, and I've, I've got four older brothers. And I think it was really hard for my brothers. I think that because I am the youngest, they struggled with not knowing what to say and not knowing what to do, and that was challenging because what 
people tend to do that care for you when you get diagnosed is that sometimes they just step away and they, they, because they don't know what to say. So they feel like, well, I better not say anything because I don't know what to say. Second time around, uh, I feel like people around me have been better. I feel like they've understood how to manage what they say, how to say, how to be there to support me. So I definitely feel way more supported this time than I did the first time. And I think because I did, you know, it's the reality. I just have to say this is it now. This is, I, I don't know how long I've got. And you all need to start taking charge of this, this and this. And it, it's really challenging. Um, recently, I've had to talk to one of my older brothers and, you know, he had to become a trustee of... Um, of, I guess, my estate, I've had to deal with the fact that I am going to die and I can't not talk about it. I have to talk about it. And things like that, I think, make things feel very real. Uh, but yeah, I, feel, I definitely feel more supported. I feel like people are better this time around. Hopefully this never happens, but if any one of your family was swapping places with you, is there something you would want to say to them? Oh, wow, that's uh, I think I probably wouldn't say it. I would do it uh, because that's what I would want. One of the nicest things someone that I had just met did for me was they just came to my house. They didn't, they knew I wasn't feeling well because at the time I think my drug stopped working. They just left me food at my doorstep, they left me a note. They sent me a text message and said, I don't want to bother you, but I know what you're going through, so I've just left you something. So I think it probably would be more of an act of love, more than uh, actually saying anything. Yeah, I would be there for them. I would show up when they least expect because I would know that that's when they would most need it. Great advice for anyone who's kind of supporting someone going through cancer. Nina, what about your daughter? Because I would imagine, you know, conversations like that can be really, really difficult. I'm a mum. I can't even imagine kind of having to have those conversations. Are you as open and honest with her about everything as you are with the rest of your family? I am very open with her. When I was first diagnosed, I knew that... I didn't want to hold back. I wanted her to know exactly what was going on because I grew up at a time when people would die and you never knew what they died from. And I didn't want that to be the case. And so when she was six and when I was diagnosed, I told her exactly what was going on. She never left my side. She would come from school. She would have her dinner by my bed. And it really enriched our relationship very early on because we were having very difficult questions as a, like such a young age with her but um now she's a teenager and now it's really challenging because she doesn't want to always talk about it and she finds her own little support network with her own friends 
when I get my scan results, I know that she gets just as anxious as I do. So I try to make sure that she's the first one to know and that I tell her as quickly as possible and that I don't delay giving her the news. And I expect that it's going to be harder, but we still talk very openly and I, I joke all the time, but sometimes I throw little things like when mummy is not here, please remember this or I want you to always remember this or try and do this, um, which I don't know if it's a good thing or if it's a bad thing, but I can only do what I know feels right as a mum. And I feel like there's no right or wrong. You just have to take it day by day and see what your children allow you to, to talk to them about. And when you feel like they don't want to talk anymore, then you, you leave it where it needs to, to be left. Has your daughter had any support through school? I know sometimes patients I've looked after or seen during treatment, they sometimes get some extra support for their children at school. Yeah, her primary school were amazing. When I was having chemo, they would call me to say she was crying and wanted to go home. And they would say, look, we just need to call you to let you know. But actually, we found a, a nice room and we're going to sit with her and we're going to comfort her because we know that, mom, you need to be in hospital. So her primary school were amazing. And soon I found counsellor within the school so she could speak to someone because very early she knew that she wanted to speak to someone that wasn't mum and dad. She wanted to be able to speak to someone who's completely neutral. So we did that. I find that with secondary school is harder. I think she's had someone but they come and they go and that doesn't feel good for I mean, it doesn't feel good for me when I'm going through therapy. I tell you that much when I have a therapist for six sessions and then it's over. So I know how she must feel. Um, and also, I feel like when you're talking about an experience like this, you probably need someone that's quite experienced to dealing with cancer because the the roller coaster that you go through every couple of weeks when there's a scan is immense. And I do feel for her because she's had to deal with this for half of her life. Um, and I'm always looking for new charities that offer any kind of support. And it's one of the questions that I do get asked quite often uh, from people that follow me on Instagram. And I, I hope that I can find all these different places that I can signpost to people so if they're going through this you know they know where kids can go and have a safe space to actually maybe talk to other kids I actually think that's what she wants I don't think that and speaking to an adult is the best thing I think she would benefit more from being in an environment where there's kids that are experiencing the same thing that she is because if you look at it like I have a cancer community. I have a group of people that are experiencing what I'm experiencing. And that makes me feel seen and that helps me process things. And when I ask them questions, then they can give me answers because I know they understand what I'm going through. So I feel like that's what, what she really needs at the moment. It's really insightful because I think it's something I've never considered before. We often have support groups for family members, but that I don't I can't think of anything specific that you know 
cancer support centres would typically offer for um, people with children and especially teenagers. I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head around that peer support. They definitely need that and would benefit from that. So um, if you do have any um, kind of resources or charities specifically that you've used or that you advise, we can definitely link it with the podcast so that anyone listening to this who thinks actually that would be perfect will we'll be able to share that. Um, so thank you. Um, Nina, can I ask in terms of kind of your your kind of day-to-day conversations with her and supporting her, um, does she try to forget that there's cancer or is it part and parcel of her daily life now? Uh, I would say she, I think it's become daily life and I don't think we talk about it as um, anything our lives are actually very normal they're not very cancery at all (laughs) they used to be very cancery before when I couldn't get out of bed but I would say at the moment no I she talks to me like I'm a healthy person when we're walking home she will be running and I have to constantly remind her that I am sick I cannot keep up with you please slow down I actually think Everyone actually forgets I'm sick and I have a very normal life and even my friends around me. Uh, so I wouldn't say, I would say it's very normal. We, we don't often talk about it unless scans are coming up or I'm not feeling well. I usually have to just say, mummy has treatment today. But she doesn't really ask questions. She definitely has, she used to ask a lot more questions. But I think that's just becoming a teenager. They don't really talk as much. So we do have a very normal life. She doesn't talk about it. Sometimes she will add the odd thing, maybe that a friend has someone who has cancer um, and you know, she will just, it will be a throwaway comment, um, which I never know if it means that she wants to engage in the conversation or not. But yeah, very normal life. We don't really, we don't really um, talk too much about it unless we have to because I've had scan results or anything else. I try to, you know, I guess our conversations are a reflection of my day-to-day life because actually my day-to-day life is, unless I have to go for treatment, it's very normal. Can I ask, you know, for anyone listening who might, be supporting a friend family member or even themselves and their children just trying to open the conversation up about exactly as you said your daughter mentioning that friends like friends whoever has cancer how could you ask a question around it without probing too much so that they shut down just well, i know it's your child i don't have children so i can't exactly fully understand it but it'd just be interesting to see what methods or tools that you've used that might help others i like I am very direct I don't like to hold back I like to just be very you know most of the time I go to Ilani and I say do you have any questions do you want to know anything I'll say treatment's not working so now we're going to look for a clinical trial this is what's going to happen and then I open the room for her to talk and she doesn't always talk sometimes she'll ask a question I I've had a lot of therapy and through therapy, I've definitely been ex- given a few tools. Ilani is very creative. So one of the things that you can do is, you know, she likes to draw. 
So if you do mood boards or if you do coloring and when you engage in conversation, if you're actually doing a different thing, we're better at communicating because we're not so focused on the conversation because we're busy doing something else. I feel like that that has helped um, a lot. And then with friends, I always tell them as well, is there anything you want to ask? I, I don't mind. I actually rather people ask me the questions. I rather they ask me really direct questions. I think most of the time we are so careful to ask things that then what people do is they ask nothing and they say nothing and then everyone is misunderstood. So I and, and kids especially, I think they really they, they are very resilient. And you just have to be honest and tell them exactly what it is. And most of the time, if she has a question, she will come to me and, and will ask. And I'm quite sure that when she's having these conversations with her friends, she's, she's got a lot to say. I'm, I can guarantee you that much. <laughs> she has a lot. Um, but also, I feel like because I'm so open about it, my friends ask me a lot of questions I feel like they're learning a lot. I notice that the more I speak openly, the more they go, oh, you know, I, was, I wasn't sure to ask you that question, but now that you've said it, you know, can we elaborate on that? So I always move with complete honesty and openness. And if someone gets offended, then I get it. But, you know, we are here to educate and to teach people and to teach children. And for me, it's important that my daughter knows because from the moment I was diagnosed, I taught her how to self-check. She knows how to check her breasts. And quite a few times she has come to me and said, mommy, I felt a lump on my breast or I've got a lump here. And I love that she can come to me because we have that openness and she can say, can you just check? And then I can reassure her and say, no, that's okay, that's normal. But keep checking and keep coming to me when something doesn't feel right. So I would always uh, say be direct, be open, be honest. Really, really good advice, I think. And especially around self-examination. Growing up, I was never taught anything about self-examination. Yeah, nothing. So I think it's good to start teaching people earlier um, as just for awareness. Nina, I have a deep question to ask you might not want to answer, which is fine. <laughs> Knowing, obviously, all the advocacy work you've done, raising awareness, obviously teaching your daughter about cancer awareness as well. If you went back in time, would you have cancer again? Look at the big pause. <laughs> that is quite the question. Yes. And I know that that's going to sound so crazy, but I feel like it has really taught me so much that I did not, I feel like I stopped living. I was working and I feel like I was on this rat race and I didn't have time for anything. I didn't have time for people. The school runs, I was always rushing. I would start speaking really fast because I was trying to get to things really quickly. I, I don't think I was actually enjoying my life very much. So although 
being diagnosed with cancer has been one of the most devastating things in my life. I have been able to turn it the other way and try and see the positives that have come out of it. I have lived a really full life these last five years. I have known how to set boundaries. I have known how to uh, prioritize the people and the things that are important to me. I have learned to say no. And that's something that I'm not sure I would have reached this point had that not happened. Uh, so it's a tough one to say, yes, would I want it? Would I have it all over again? But it has definitely, it's changed the course of my life in a better way. And like they say, sometimes your life doesn't have to be long to be rich. Like I have a really rich and full life now. And I do believe that I got to have cancer because I was so stressed. I know that for, for different people, they have different beliefs. But personally, for me, I just was working so hard. I wasn't enjoying life. I wasn't taking really good care of me. My mental health probably wasn't the best that it should have been. And I can see the things that got me to where I am now. And now that I have the cancer, I know how to go back and, and not fix, but do them over again and do them better. And I couldn't have done it if I hadn't been diagnosed with, with cancer. But equally, I wish I didn't have to be living with cancer. I, my biggest hope is that soon it will be just living with a chronic illness and that this won't be a death sentence. I, I hope that in me entering a trial, that it means that the people that come after me, that they have an extra line of treatment that, you know, I didn't really have as an extra one. And I, I really hope that I can continue to enter more trials so that more people have these available lines of treatment. And I also hope that people see that when you live with cancer, you, you have to stop and you have to evaluate your life. And all of a sudden you start to live, but you shouldn't have to wait until you have cancer to actually evaluate your life and live well. And yeah, so it's a tough question to answer. I feel like it can kind of go so many ways, right? <laughs> we like to ask the difficult questions. I'm sorry. Um, but but it is, it's so interesting because of all the guests that we've ever asked that question, they've all said the same. You know, how, how ever they've experienced cancer, um, you know, whether or not for them they're at a specific stage or not, they have all said the same. And it's always shocking as a healthcare professional. The first time you ever hear... A patient say that you're like what what why but you you've explained it perfectly in terms of you know a lot of us will go through life without necessarily smelling the roses and really stopping and appreciating things and you know there is that almost like that 
like reality check of actually what are we doing and why are we doing it um so thank you for kind of being so selfless and kind of articulating yourself so well because it perfectly explains um the reason why you've said yes which for some might sound shocking so thank you then we're gonna get on to a fun question i feel like we need it tell us about your trip oh my god (laughs) yes so i am so excited it's five days to go this is my second trek I am taking part on a trek with Venari Partners and this time I've been nominated. I am going, there's seven amazing, brilliant people with amazing stories and we are going to be going to Jordan and trekking through Petra. That is one of the seven wonders of the world and a place that actually I have always wanted to go to and I probably wouldn't have gone on a trek so soon after my last trek, but I got nominated and I felt like that's the universe telling you to go. So why would you say no? You just go. And I feel like when I sign up for these treks, I always sign up um, because I want to raise money. I want to give back, but equally because I'm always trying to maybe prove to myself that my body can do this that I am not dying, that I've got lots of life to live and plenty of it ahead of me. And maybe I do these treks so that it pushes me out of my comfort zone. And I don't know, maybe I keep thinking at the end of it, there's something that says, oh, this was just a game. You're going to live forever. Keep going, keep trekking. But uh, I'm raising money for Black Women Rising, who also are a great charity that helped me a lot. I found my sisterhood when I joined Black Women Rising, when I finished all of my treatment and felt so lost and I felt like I didn't really have my my tribe and people who understood. So I felt very lonely, but I had a lot of people around me and a lot of support but no one understood what I was going through. And I found these amazing women that understood exactly what I was going through. And we would have meetings where I could show up at my worst and everyone would understand what I was going through. And that really taught me how to be vulnerable, how to process things. So in a way, kind of worked like therapy for me. So going on this trek, it's my way of saying thank you for all that they do for the community and also to show people that just because you are diagnosed with secondary breast cancer and if it's terminal, it doesn't mean that life is going to end, that you can still live, that you don't have to move in fear. There's still a lot of life. So I'm very excited to get my boots on and get tracking. I'm very excited, very, very excited. You can tell by my face, I can't wait to go. <laughs> oh, it sounds amazing. And I know Joe's done a track too, so I've heard all about oh. it. <clears throat> <laughs> so Nina, we always like to end our episodes with some top tips. You've given lots throughout, but I wondered if you had any final thoughts for our listeners. Yes. If you are living with cancer, I would say that your mental health is your top priority. Learn to say no, 
learning to say yes to the things that make you the happiest. Money is not everything. I know that I've met a lot of people who, you know, we all have to work, we all have to make money to pay our bills, but we have to find a balance because we're not gonna be here forever. And do the things that make you happy. Don't wait until next week or the next month you need to just chase those things that fill your heart with all the joy and all the memories. I would say that if it's in regards to hospital appointments, write everything down, go in prepared, ask a lot of questions. Your quality of life should be your priority. And if you are informed, you will make the best decision for you. There's no right or wrong answer. And don't move from fear, actually move from, from knowledge. Try to read, try to ask questions. I would say be curious always and stay hopeful. I never thought that I would be here two years later when I asked how long I had and how many treatment lines, mainly because I actually didn't want to do chemo. Um, I was told, maybe three months and I'm, I'm, I'm still here and you have to hold on to hope because hope is what will keep you going to, to the end and will keep you living. So remain hopeful and informed and curious and don't stop living. Thank you so much. Really, really lovely final comments and thoughts for our listeners. So thank you so much for being so honest as well and coming on and having a chat with us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. I now know what you both look like and what you both sound like through a screen. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Norman Chilkansen and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form link to the podcast. So our next guest feature will be CK, uh, who will be talking about their incredible work with the LGBTIQ plus community. Thank you for listening and take care.